This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You are here on My Turning Point, where this week, really honored to be joined by longtime friend David Duchovny, actor, author, and musician as of a few years ago. He has a wonderful new album, Gestureland, out. A lot of fun, as always, to talk with David, again, about the genius of Warren Zevon, a recurring theme between he and I, as well as being a bartender at Radio City Music Hall at 21, the new album, and much more, and why he always wanted to write his Cats in the Cradle. So hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. Where are you based these days? I was going to say before you shut your blinds that you have as you're as bad at lighting zooms as I am. But there, <laughs> I, I like that. I like it to look like the uh, you know when when you're dying and you're walking towards the light. Well, Gene Simmons of Kiss yelled at me for the bad lighting, so ever since then I've been you know more cautious about it. That guy he yells at everybody about everything. He's got problems with everybody. <laughs> He's an interesting dude, no question. Um, you know. It's been a minute. It's always good to catch up with you. We've done several interviews over the years. Uh, you know, this is a really funny one, though. I'm excited about this one. First of all, the record is wonderful. It's great. Thank you. But, Thanks. you know, it's so funny. The last song on the record, I suck with titles because I listen to everything all the way through. But the last one had a definite Zevon feel to me. Which and, is the last song of Tranquility? Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definite, yeah. definite Zevon feel to me. And, and this is why that's funny. You will never remember this. We did an oh, interview back in 2013 on the set of Californication. And it was when you were just learning guitar, but you had not <laughs> yet started writing songs. And I suggested yeah. to you that you should do a Zevon biopic. And you said, I don't write songs, so there's no fucking way. Now, yeah. Then I actually ran into Judd Apatow, who's a big Zevon fan, and I pitched him this idea. And so now, of course, I know you guys just did a movie together, but bringing this all full circle is I just yeah. did an interview with Jackson Brown for an hour, and I suggested this to him, and he just goes, hmm, that's really interesting. So if you get Jackson Brown's blessing, it has to happen. Oh, man. Um, I th think that, you know, when, when I was doing Californication, I think Tom Kapanos, the creator of the show, had somebody came to him with like a, a Zevon biopic. I think Billy Bob Thornton had the had the you know the interest and um, you know was trying to get it written or was trying to get it done because I think he was friends with Zevon. And he and, was, yeah. And uh, you know, I really discovered Zevon. I don't know if we talked about that when uh, the last time we talked, but. I really didn't know that much about him outside of Werewolves of London before I started prepping for Californication. I don't know why I came to Zevon. It was really just dumb luck or just like good sense. 
And I just started listening and listening. And it was like, oh God, this, this is this guy's world. I mean, this is just, this is his California that we're doing. And uh, I turned Kapanos on to Zivon. And then he became like the patron saint for us of not only Hank Moody, but also, you know, getting him in on the soundtrack whenever we could. All right. So this being said, you know, for me, as a Zivon fan, and it's funny, there's actually a Facebook group solely devoted to induct Warren Zivon into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it's a fucking crime that he's not in. So I don't know who does the biopic as long as he gets the respect he's due. But would you be, would you feel comfortable playing him? Yeah. I mean, I can get comfortable playing anything if I have time, you know? I mean, it's always, it's always tough to play an actual person that there's a lot of footage of and that people know what he sounds like and what he looks like. So you need help. You know, a lot of it is hair and makeup, you know, um, his voice and mine are not similar. Um, I wouldn't want to like re-record his songs. I'd want to use his songs. So, um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, I think it, it just depends. It depends on what the, you know, the movie has to, aside from like loving Zivon, the movie has to have like a reason to be, you know, like what's the reason to be, what's the, what is the tale of his life going to mean in a movie? And, and to me, that would be, if that could be answered, then yeah, then, then, it, then I'd love to see that done, whether it was me in it or not. But it's like, what's the, if it's a cautionary tale, I don't know. Another rock and roll cautionary tale. I don't know. What, what's, what's the tale? you're telling you know interesting yeah well i'd have to think about that i mean i only got to interview the guy once and we're going to come on to your record in a second but it was just so funny to see you having done the movie with judd because this and the fact that i just mentioned this to jackson and jackson didn't he wasn't like dude that's the dumbest idea i've ever heard he was just like oh that's actually kind of it so if jackson brown gives it his blessing then you know <laughs> since well, few yeah, people just, knew Zevon better before 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 we move on, I will I'll just share one last thing with you, which was um, when I was prepping to direct a movie that I did called House of D. My father died, and this was this was right around two thousand and it's probably two thousand and four or five. When did Zevon die? Right around that, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was right around then. So they had just. He had just released, uh, posthumously, he released that last album. Was it The Wind? What was it called? Yeah, The Wind. Uh, yeah. So there was a version of Knocking on Heaven's Door on that. And I was just kind of trying to keep my shit together, prepping this movie, trying to keep my mind right. And I would listen to that song over and over again. And I know, like, everybody everybody who was working with me was probably thinking he's lost his mind because it's the only song... I listened to it for like two weeks over and over and over again. And then on the call sheet, sometimes, sometimes you'll get an AD that likes to have like sayings on the call sheet to kind of, or jokes or whatever. And so he asked me if there was something that I wanted to be like the mantra of the movie while we were shooting, like every day on the call sheet says this thing. And so I said, yeah, enjoy every sandwich. That's awesome. Which is, yeah, of course, I still what he tear up watching that last Letterman interview. Yeah, he was such an interesting. I mean, it's funny. There definitely is a tale there. I don't know it well enough to write it, but I felt yeah. like if you worked with you know some of his friends, and it's funny because Billy Bob I know was a friend. In fact, one of the coolest things I ever got to do, and then we'll come on to your record. So it was I got to be there when they did the Grammy tribute to Warren. I actually got to be backstage with Billy Bob and Jackson and all those people, 
And so that's probably, that's by far my favorite Grammy moment ever getting to watch, you know, because uh, like it was so moving to watch all these people who knew him, including his son. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting though. I mean, um, you know, my favorite song on the record, by the way, I mean, dude, I loved Call Me When You Land. It's such an oh, interesting, yeah. I mean, it's funny for you as a writer, when you start to tap into those moments of vulnerability, does it almost surprise you in a way to see like, oh shit, I really went there? Well, I'm glad you bring that up because I think of all the songs on the album, I think, oh, that's the softest, right? Like that's because because I, I go through my life and every time Cats in the Cradle comes on, I lose my shit, right? And I know it's, I know it's a hokey song, but I'm crying every time that song comes on. So I was like, I want to write my cats in the cradle. One of these days, I want to try to write or Father and Son by Cat uh, Stevens. You know, like these are like song or She's Leaving by the Beatles. You know, songs that are really about the pain of being a parent, you know, from, from the parent's point of view, not from the kid's point of view of rebellion against the parent, which is what most rock and roll is going to be about, right? So I was like, yeah, I got to write my cats in the cradle. And I think my daughter just said to me once when she was starting to travel around, you know, on her own, she just tossed off that, you know, I'll call you when I land, which is one of those things we say, you know, on the phone that are so, <laughs> that are so like emotive, you know, like uh, I'm losing you, I'm losing you, I'm losing you, or, you know, you're breaking up or you're breaking, you know, like these things that, that are like hugely symbolic. So call, call you, call you when I land. It's like, Oh God, that breaks my heart. You know, it's like, the idea that you might not land, the idea of landing as an adult and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, okay. There's something in that phrase that makes me feel like I'm in the cats in the cradle area. So I wanted to pursue it. So yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. It was all about vulnerability. I mean, because that's what, you know, being a parent is all about, like that. But it's so interesting that you, because I love Harry Chapin, man. Harry Chapin was such a, it's funny because Cats in the Cradle is hokey, but songs like Taxi, Sequel, W-O-L-D, he was a great yeah. songwriter. Um, yeah. But the Cats thing the is, it's funny. A great song. I would What's say that? that Cats in the Cradle is a great song. I would say the production is a bit hokey, you know, the, the, the production mm -hmm. of it, you know. But yeah. yeah, but go ahead, finish your Harry Chapin talk. Well, no, what I was going to say is it's interesting because I think about this, right? I hear these songs like Jim Croce Operator, for example, right? Yeah, Great, yeah. cheesy song as well, right? But I think about yeah. the fact that you hear a song like that, it has absolutely no relevance today because, you know, 98% of the people in the world don't know what the fucking yeah. operator is. <laughs> you know? So I like yeah. that Call Me When You Land. It has that feeling. It takes it and it makes it relevant to today. It has that feeling of like, okay, this is what a parent feels like today. Yeah, well, and it'll last as long until we start to be able to teleport ourselves and we don't need airplanes anymore. I mean, it's such interesting, and it's funny because, again, I gravitate to that song because, like you say, it's the softest song on the record. And yeah. I love that one. But, I mean, I also love the fact that on some of the other ones, you really rock out. And I think, like, on the opening track, and again, I suck with titles because I'll just listen to everything all the way through, unless yeah. the song, like, there's something that really stands out to me. But it's like... And there was another one as well. I want to say it was like the fourth or fifth song. And, and it has that like, it's funny because it didn't sound like Dinosaur Jr. But when I hear it, I hear that 90s wall of guitar and sound. And all I'm thinking is like, this is just going to be fun to play live. So I like the contrast on the record. Probably, I mean, that was ahead. probably laying, laying on the tracks. 
was that that song? It's probably laying on the tracks. That that sound, I think. Yeah. And then the opening yeah, one as well, though, ends with that wall of distortion. Yeah, yeah. No, no, they they are going to be fun to play live for sure. You know, and that's that's always an interesting thing to think about when you're when you're recording the songs because a song, it's like, oh man, it's like you really want to do the production that brings out the heart of the song, you know, and you're not, you don't always get it right, you know, and then, cause, cause sometimes I'll have like a song that I think is really moving when I play it on guitar. I mean, just, that's my opinion. And then, you know, it goes through production and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and my singing gets better and everything's better. And yet I'm not moved anymore. And I'm like, what happened? Where'd it go? Where'd the, where'd the heart of the song go? And then there are songs where you're just like, no, nah, this is going to be fun live. This is just a fucking rock and roll song. See, that's so interesting, though, because for you, when you look at a song like Call Me When You Land, though, do you feel like yeah. then, you know, do you, I mean, that's a song that I feel like you have to keep that stripped down to keep that vulnerability. So for yeah, you, we'll talk about as an artist, you know, figuring yeah. out how to sort of strike that balance where, in fact... Yeah. You know, you're like, okay, cool. This is like, I want to take this to the stage. I want to rock the venue versus like, right. okay, this needs to be that, you know, like freaking Nick Drake, Cat Stevens softness yeah, yes. to maintain the message. Well, yeah. And, and, and it, that would be a discussion I'd have with the band is like, if we're going to play Call Me When You Land live, you know, how do we want to speed it up? Or do we want to strip it down even more? Do we want to just, what does it sound like with just a piano? What does it sound like with just a guitar? What does it sound like without a drum? You know, what does it sound like? So, yeah, those are all, those are all really fun questions when you're performing live to kind of reimagine certain songs and, and get back to their essence. All right. So are there ones that you, have you started rehearsals yet for this tour? Or? No, 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 not yet. I mean, we don't even know you know, it's all a changing situation, right? So we don't, we don't know when we're going to get out there. I mean, I hope so, but no, no rehearsals yet. So are there songs for you though, that immediately you're particularly excited to see how they come to the stage and how, cause look, I talk about this with artists all the time too, right? When you play a song live, it changes. It takes on a yeah. different life. The song has a different pulse. And of course, when you're watching people interact with it, it definitely has like a whole new meaning. So are there songs for you from Gestureland that you're really excited to see like, okay, this is what an audience is going to do with it. Yeah. It depends on the size of the audience sometimes. Cause it, I mean, I feel like the, the harder songs, the rock, the more rock songs, like, like, uh, like nights are harder or laying on the tracks. Um, I know how, I know how to perform those live. I know they go over live loud. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not concerned about, them it's really always just like how do i get across the the emotion of some of the what i feel are more uh, vulnerable and quieter songs and how do i do it after having played those other songs how do you how do you take the audience you know on the journey and not give them whiplash you know that those are always like how is this going to be like a night that's going to that's going to go like this you know instead of going like this you know it's like i i don't know I don't know. I can never answer that correctly until I get out there. Even then, so for you then, no obvious question. Are there artists that you've seen who take you on that journey that you look to? It's like, okay, these are the people who, you know, are the masters of this. Honestly, I, I guess it's less like arena rock isn't like that, right? It, it's just hard to do. Not that I play arenas, 
But I used to bartend at Radio City Music Hall when I was like 21 years old, right after college. And I saw I saw so many different acts coming through. I saw Prince there before, uh, like he had a little red Corvette, but it wasn't like no When Doves Cry yet, no Purple Rain yet. He, uh, I saw uh, Peter Allen, who was remarkably great. Um, I saw Marvin Gaye. I saw Marvin Gaye wow. come out in a, uh, a sexual healing tour. He come out in a, a, for the encore for sexual healing. Come out in a silk bathrobe, you know. But crazy enough, the one performer that I saw take the audience almost like a great movie or a play made them laugh and then made them cry and was entertaining all the way through without any kind of like a general rise to the top and then down, but, but almost like a waving, waving, sad song, happy song, jokes, tears. It was Bette Midler. I mean, and I, I, I don't own one Bette Midler album. I don't know her music at all, but I, I watched her and I was like, that person just took that audience, just grabbed them and said, we're going here. We're going to laugh. We're going here. We're going to cry. You know, and I've never seen anything like that. And that's Radio City Musical. So that's not a huge venue, but it's pretty big. Well, see, that's so interesting, though, as well, because obviously she's a you know performer in film and has been an actress for years yeah. and done some great work. So do you feel like it's interesting do you feel like then in a way it almost gives you an advantage because you know how to work with an audience? Because obviously she had an advantage of knowing how to work with an audience. Yeah. Um, you'd think so. I should probably think about it more that way. I think, you know, at first, from my experience of just going out and playing live, I was so terrified of just like, oh shit, are my, are my pants going to split? Am I, uh, is the mic going to work? You know, all, all, the, all the little things. Um, and then just like, can I say... I, I can't sing like this. I mean, am I going to be able to sing like this? And then, uh, can I hear the bass? Where's the bass? You know, all these things. And then eventually, as you get more experience, then you start to get into like the luxury idea of, okay, okay, the music is going to take care of itself. I know the songs. I know how to sing them. They're going to be within a certain range of good. Uh, now, what's it about? It's about this evening. What do I want this evening to be about? What journey do I want to take? How do I do it without being an asshole? How do I do it without being, you know, a cheesy kind of clap your hands, everybody? You know, how do how are we going to do it? You know? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's funny because, like, it's all right. So now that I have to ask, I mean, it's funny because you know, since you say all these tales of worrying about whether you know you can sing it or you know the pants are going to split or the mic or whatever. So have you had a super embarrassing moment yet on stage? Yeah. I tripped in, uh, in Warsaw. Uh, I, I move around a lot and I'm not that careful. And you know, there's cords and shit and I have a mic that has a cord and I was kind of moving backwards, not, not looking where I was going. And the next thing I knew I was flat on my back and uh, I was in the middle of singing the song. So I just kind of stayed there. You know, I, I tried to own the. I tried to own the moment. Like, yeah, I know that happened, but I'm not going to try to run away from it too soon. Uh, so that was probably the biggest surprise uh, and a, you know, kind of embarrassing klutzy move. You know, it's always like the klutzy rock and roll move. You know. 
<laughs> well, but it's funny. See, then after it happens and you survive it, does it then just make it easy? Like, okay, cool. I've done this. I've had this moment. You know, look, I mean, Springsteen's arguably the greatest performer in the history of the world, right? He went up on stage yeah. in Cleveland, or I think it was Detroit. And this is, you know, 45 years into his career. He's like, in Detroit, he's like, hello, Cleveland. You know, <laughs> happens to everybody. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know what? It's all about how you react to it. You know, it's like, what does Miles Davis say? There's no wrong notes. Like, it's just, it's like what you play after what supposedly that wrong note is what's going to save it or not. So it's just like, yeah, that's, that happened. That's life. This is not a canned performance. This is happening in real time. This is not a choreographed thing. Some, some, some accident just happened. So we're all human. I think that's, it's actually a great moment. It's like that can actually make a connection to an audience. It's like, instead of like, ah, ah, you thought you were a rock and roller and they fucking fell on your ass. You can also just be like, yeah, we're all people, motherfucker. You know? <laughs> All right. A couple of things I want to touch on before we have to wrap up, because I know we're going to run out of time. But one, it's interesting for me. This is really fascinating coming back to songs like Lay on the Tracks and, and Nights Are Harder. That was the other one. Like I said, I suck with titles, but you mentioned the title. You know, again, I talked to you when you were first starting to play guitar. So for you, yeah. you know, how exciting is it that now you feel comfortable, you know, stretching out a little bit on guitar and, you know, having sort of, you know, reached this point where, again, you know, OK, I mean, you feel comfortable, like, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to stretch out, and I'm going to feel, you know, confident in doing it. Uh, I relate to that more uh, vocally, because that's really where, I, you know, as part of a band, which I feel that I am, I, you know, they didn't need, they don't need me to play guitar. You know, they're, we have good guitar players, really good guitar players. I'm, I'm never going to be more than fucking mediocre. But they need, they need me to sing the best that I can, like within my, you know, within whatever God has given me, I got to work on the rest. So, uh, which is significant. I got to have significant work to do. So I, I have really worked hard on that. So I relate to it in that way that, you know, the fact that I can get up on the stage at any point and not feel terrified and know that I can basically perform a song that I've written and not embarrass myself. Um, I feel good about that. More, more, more than like the guitar. The guitar playing is only ever going to be good enough so that I can write songs, so that I can put chords together and write songs. You know, it's never going to be, hey, listen to this. You know, listen to me shred. You know? <laughs> All right. So it's interesting for you. What are the one or two vocal moments on this record that you look back on and again you feel like okay, you've really stretched out the most, and you and you find yourself. You know, look, as, an, as a writer, as an actor, as any artistic thing, you you follow your progression and you have those moments that you try and build upon and you're like, okay, this is, I'm getting closer to who it is I want to be. So for you as a vocalist, what are those moments on Gesture Land where you're like, all right, this is who I want to become as I go further in my career? I think Call Me When You Land is one, the, 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 the chorus. Uh, and in fact... Uh, when when we were recording it, the first chorus was a little simpler. It didn't do that. Call me when you land. And it was just like, call me when you land. It was like one note. And I was like, no, man, I really like that little that little riff there that I that I do, that I can do now. You know, so let's put it in there both times, both choruses. Let's let's have that. And I like the way that feels. Uh, Te Sarah is another one. Te Sarah is the melody was really written and sung at first by Colin Lee, 
the uh, my uh, the the, the piano, the keyboardist, and he has a higher range than me. And and I said, no, I think I can get it. I, let me let me try that. I like I like having I like you pushing me up there because if like I'm not going to naturally write a song in a key that's tough for me or that pushes me, but you know that's where the band comes in. So I feel like those songs that pushed me vocally, those two, uh, I'm proud of them. Yeah. All right, it's fine. We'll make these last two questions, but I love the, what you said about, you know, your job is, is to sing well enough for the band. Cause I got to interview Tom yeah. Petty once and I was talking to him about songwriting and he was saying, well, basically my job is just to write songs good enough that the band doesn't replace me with Springsteen. So for you, you know, as you come in there at, you know, like for you, you know, when you're writing these moments or you have those moments where you're singing with the band and, you know, there's that sort of pride, you know, talk about what that feels like for you as an artist to be like, all right, cool. I can hang with these musicians. Like I'm, you know, I'm here at this point that we can get up on stage at the Roxy or the Troubadour or Radio City Music Hall or wherever it is. And it's like, yeah, I'm not embarrassing them. Or they're not going to kick you out for Springsteen. (laughs) Well, no, I think they'd be wise to. If they have the if they have the opportunity, but um, yeah, I think that happened after about the first couple little tours that we did, where where I just started to realize that I that I was bringing something aside from you know the songs and and whatever voice I could do live. Um, I was bringing a certain kind of perspective and energy, and certainly an audience uh, for them to to play as well as they do. So yeah, I mean, I I feel like one of the great things about making music is how reliant you are on everybody else. Unless you're Stevie Wonder who can play every instrument, you know, better than anybody. (laughs) Did you see the the doc, the quest love doc where Stevie? Yeah. I actually just interviewed quest the other day. It was that. Yeah. Drum solo. It's like, what? (laughs) Forget it. You know? So, I mean, unless, unless you're, you're that kind of a genius, uh, you know, you are really dependent on, everybody else's talents, which I, I actually like a lot. Well, you know, Chris was that kind of genius as well. All right, let's wrap up on the writing because, you know, I always love talking about writing with you. And one of my questions is, I mean, you know, when you go back and listen to this, look, good writing is subconscious. It always is, you know, it leads you. So are there moments then on gesture land that really surprise you or when you go back and look at them and, you know, again, I mentioned specifically, you know, call me when you land, but are there ones, other ones on there where you're just like, or even lyrical passage where you're like, Oh, and especially, I don't know when this album was written, but dude, in the last year when everybody went through such a mindfuck, I've done hundreds, if not thousands of interviews, and every artist has had a different approach or a sensibility, you know, coming through COVID because, you know, they're simply home all the time or they're isolated or, you know, they're on break or whatever it is. So I don't know when these songs were written. Uh, They they were mostly written before the lockdown because we were actually recording the album uh, in the spring, right before the lockdown. And, you know, if, if we'd had another month, you know, to get into like April and May, uh, we would have finished it, uh, over a year ago. So, you know, all these songs, uh, I'm not, I don't think any of the songs except for, I mean, even laying on the tracks, which kind of references Trump. I, I um, yeah, that might've been written during, during it. That might be the most recent, but, uh, lyrically, uh, Sea of Tranquility would be a, that, that one really surprised me because, you know, sometimes I'll just start writing a song. <laughs> and you don't want, you don't want, you don't want to admit this, 
but it's like sometimes I just write a song where you know, you know I mean basically I'm saying I'm sitting here writing a song you know that song starts like it's almost like a motor trying to turn on it's like it's like uh sitting here tonight you know like sitting here tonight like how many songs start that way I mean it's because you're like I'm just trying to get it out tonight, you know, like, okay, sitting here tonight, missing you and then missing blue, which, which, which sounds like you're blue because you're missing someone. But in fact, I had a dog named blue. So it's like, it's the, the personal meaning is way different from how it sounds. So I kind of like that. I'm miss, I'm actually missing a dog in the first line. And then I had read this article uh, in the times about this couple, the, the, these, these, uh, these, these two young people that were addicted to meth. And they had gone on this, uh, they had robbed this convenience store and they were trying to save up enough money to get to the moon somehow because they were convinced that the moon was made of drugs. And I thought, you know, they're right. Like throughout, throughout human history, like the moon is kind of a drug on us. And so I was like, I was like that line, you know, that the moon, like I'm hoping that the moon is made of drugs. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm feeling kind of low. I'm hoping the moon is made of drugs. It's like, okay, there's this fucking song here that's coming out that's starting to make sense from all these different angles. And then I wrote a verse, like from the moon's point of view, which was like, what's it like to look at the earth? Like from the moon, you know, like you were part of the earth, right? An asteroid hit the earth and it broke off this piece. And now you're like, do you want to come back? Are you trying to get back? Are you, you know, what's it like being in orbit around the place where you once were home? So it was like all these, it all made sense from a totally human perspective but it was all these like to use like these meth addicts and, and their kind of delusion and to use like uh, to write from the point of view of the moon and then to use sea of tranquility you know a lot of your readers won't know anymore that that's actually where the the apollo landed right that was the base uh, uh they landed in the sea of tranquility and then the idea that you'd be swimming up in the moon you know it's just all kind of it, it all it all made no sense, but it made sense. So that that surprised me. Nice. Well, I know we got to wrap up because we've already gone thirty. But is there anything that you want to add? I didn't ask you about. I also love the fact on that story, by the way, because again, never in a billion years would I have picked up on any of that from the song. But that's what makes good songwriting is when you go back and hear right. it. And you know, like I said, that was the one that to me had that little bit of Zevon essence. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, no, I don't want to add anything. I'll just say my, my favorite Zevon song is probably Desperados Under the Eaves. It's a great one. No, it's not Desperados Under the Eaves. Yeah, it is Desperados Under the Eaves. Yeah, yeah. I was going accidentally like a martyr, but the thing about Zevon that made him so special was the fact that he could do freaking, you know, Johnny Strikes Up the Band and accidentally like a martyr. There weren't mm-hmm. that many people who could do. And it's always fast. I just, he came up in an interview. Well, he comes up in a lot of my interviews, as you can tell. But uh, also with Jacob Dylan, like we were talking about, I mean, he was just unique, even to other songwriters. He was so damn unique. Yeah, I mean, and also I think his musicality is very uh, classical. You know, like he's 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 not just doing four chords. You know, refrain. He, I mean, maybe maybe he is, but he, he the way he orchestrates is really cla- almost like a classical composer. So, like if you think about the end of of uh, Desperados on the Eaves, it, it gets orchestral, you know, look away down Gower Avenue, you know, that whole, that second part of the song, which swells and like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> cool, dude. Always a pleasure catching up. Congratulations on the record. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll get to play it live sooner rather than later. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to see you, man. Thank Take you. Take care. 
Hey, this is Steve Walton. You've been listening to My Turning Point with special guest David Duchovny. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.